So I've been uh, circling around a question. Um, something like, what is Buddhism really? What is Buddhist practice really? Um, in this exploration, uh, I came across two sources that I'd like to read from today that might shed some light on actually how difficult of a question or questions these really are. What is Buddhism? Um, one of the first associations or thoughts that goes through people's minds when they hear the word Buddhism is that Buddhism equals meditation. In fact, I, I would not be going too far out on a limb to say that for most people, it's almost synonymous with Buddhism. Meditation equals Buddhism, period. Buddhism equals meditation. Um, but we all know, of course, that there are many uh, types of meditation that are not Buddhist. And we know that on some level that Buddhism has many other aspects to it, many other practices and many other facets to it other than meditation. <clears throat> there are two reasons I think that people have this sort of equation in their mind. One, of course, is that meditation is the central practice in a lot of schools of Buddhism, um, especially here in the West. Uh, we've taken on schools of Buddhism where seated meditation is the focus. And so many teachers emphasizes, emphasize seated meditation in their teaching, just like we do here. But the other reason, uh, perhaps more interesting, the why we have this equation is that um, that our minds tend to focus in on one attribute, one aspect, um, and in a sense, we when we do that, we don't see the big picture. Um, we if we panned out we would see that our individual meditation practice, our individual zazen practice, is only one part of what Buddhism really is. But it seems that Westerners, Americans, have grabbed on to meditation over the last 50 years or so and have tried to extract it from Buddhism. Like, I'm going to take, it's like a pick and choose kind of menu. Like, I'm just going to take that, and I'll take that. Um, and that beco has become kind of myopic, um, because in that process, I fear that there has been a great sacrifice of what else is available through the Buddhist teachings and practice. It's not surprising that we do that. In a book called The Geography of Thought, uh, by an author, Richard Nisbet, who's a psychology professor. Um, he takes a look at the differences between the way Easterners, especially East Asians, East Asian people, 
and Westerners, especially Americans, think, the way their minds work. He started this research after a Chinese student of his came up to him after class and said something to the effect of, you think in a straight line while I think in, or I, you see the world as in a straight line while I see the world as a circle. His book examines and questions that the notion that all humans think alike. Um, I think that we would like to believe that we all think alike. Um, that uh, because we share the same hardware, we, we have that, we all have, or for the most part, have the same hardware, and so, so it's, it's hard to believe that our software might be different, but what his research shows is how deep these differences actually go. In one of his experiments, he filmed fish darting around an underwater scene, and, and then he had groups of uh, East Asian people and Americans tell him tell the researchers what they saw. And there were stark differences. The Americans tended to focus on um, a big fish that kept swimming back and forth. They might have said something like, what I saw was a trout, and it had pink spots on it, and it, and it swam off to the left. Whereas people from East Asia started describing the context of what they saw, the scene, so to speak. I saw a stream or a pond with rocks on the bottom and, and plants. And more specifically, the Japanese observers remembered 60% more about the details of, their envir of the environment that they observed. And they recalled 100% as double the amount of relationships between the objects in the scene than the Americans did. So what Nisbet looks at is how Americans tend to hone in on objects while East Asians tend to look at relationships. Americans tend to zoom in and reify things, focusing in on things rather than process. So it's no wonder that we tend to believe that Buddhism is simply a tool, an object, a tool for us to become whatever it might be, more calm or more centered. It's like the people who solely focus in on the fish. American Buddhists have been trying to focus on meditation to the exclusion of the greater path. And so we tend to see meditation as a very isolated and individualistic thing that we do. <clears throat> this way of objectifying also plays out in very, very subtle ways in our practice, in the meditation practice itself. There's a tendency for Americans to focus in and become object-oriented in their practice. 
in a, an article, separate from this, not the book, but in an article called Sweet and Sour Buddhism, a author named Victor uh, Sogen Hore, who is a professor at McGill, and um, he actually was a Rinzai Zen monk for 20, close to 25 years in Japan. Uh, he described going to a meditation retreat. So I'd like to read a little bit from that article. He said, two years ago, I participated in a week-long Chinese Zen, Chan, retreat, which is a little different from Japanese style. but And it was attended by both white Americans and ethnic Chinese. And at the end of the retreat, the master asked each participant to express what benefit he or she had derived from the retreat. The white Americans spoke uniformly of how the long hours of meditation had helped them get in touch with themselves, given them strength and sanity to cope with the pressures of society. <clears throat> the Chinese contributions were very different. The first Chinese woman broke down in tears as she spoke. The week of meditation had made her realize how selfish she usually was. She wanted right then and there to bow down in apology before her family. She wanted to perform some act of deep repentance. When the master asked Americans, the Americans, if they felt repentance, one person replied with a touch of impatience in his voice, you always ask me that, and I always reply, no. Although we, spend one, we had spent one week sitting together side by side with the same master, we seemed to be two groups who had experienced the same retreat in two very different ways. Perhaps it was only because of the composition of this particular retreat he says, but I came away reinforced in my belief that Westerners do not understand Buddhism in the same way that ethnic Buddhists do. After much reflection, I've come to feel that these responses arise from two different notions of the person. The person as autonomous, an autonomous individual, and the person as the nexus of social relation or as Nisbet might call it, two different ways that people think, object thinkers and relational thinkers. So this nexus of relation. Uh, the other night here, um, walking down past the kitchen building towards the bathroom, if you look to the right, uh, there's often a gigantic spider web. And uh, I spent some time watching this spider disassemble its internal structure of the web and then rebuilding it. Maybe 15 minutes I sat there and watched this careful back and forth and weaving this net, this web. In Buddhism, there is the image of the net of Indra. Um, the net of Indra, imagine a gigantic web or net. And at, the each, at each intersection, there is a jewel. And each jewel reflects 
every other jewel. And so the images are reflected infinitely, like two mirrors looking at each other. The jewel, of course, is a metaphor for our individual selves, beings. <clears throat> but the truth of Buddhism is that we're connected with each and every other jewel. In fact, we're not just connected through this web, but we are, we are each individual and every other jewel. So the article from Sweet and Sour Buddhism goes on. He says, in the West, the person is an autonomous being who exists independent of social roles and relations. For most societies outside the influence of the European Enlightenment, however, a person is not independent of social roles and relations. In answer to the question, who are you? One does not answer with just one's name, but rather, I am the son or the daughter of so-and-so, father or mother to so-and-so. My identity as a person depends on my relationships with the other persons, and ultimately with place and with history and with time. A lot of us, I suspect, <clears throat> are trying to escape our connections, trying to disown our families, trying to carve out an independent identity outside of our particular histories. And so it's not uncommon for people to come to a center like this wanting that clean slate of just washing away all of these complex relationships from our past and from our current lives. And this idea of being autonomous is so ingrained in the American psyche, so reinforced it starts so early. In um, going back to that book, The Geography of Thought, one study really shows a, a, a little glimpse into this. They studied mothers and their toddlers. They would have mothers and toddlers play with a set of objects, a car toy, for example. And the American mothers would say something like, look, Billy, it's a car. It has big wheels. In other words, look at the object. Observe its attributes. Whereas the Japanese mothers would say something like, look at the vroom vroom. I give it to you. You give it to me. Yes, thank you. The emphasis on relationship on verb, vroom vroom, it's a vroom vroom. It can, that's what it is, it's not a car. In fact, this is true in Zen practice too. There's a word that we use, kensho, for a glimpse into true nature. 
It's an opening type of experience, Kensho. But in Japan, and we tend to see that in the West here as a noun. I got Kensho. I got enlightenment. But in Japanese, the word is actually a verb to Kensho something, to understand something. So it's a fluid process rather than a static thing. <clears throat> so you can see how these small experiments begin to shed light on how quickly, how soon we begin to learn to objectify ourselves and things in a very concrete way. So going back to the article, he says, Buddhism developed in societies in which the person was perceived as having been created from social relations. Now, as Western practitioners attempt to follow Buddhist practice and teaching in North America, they're trying to combine Buddhism with a fundamentally different concept of the person. And I believe that you find this happening more and more as Buddhism is secularized here in the West. Most people are taking up meditation practice, but are viewing it like they're going to the gym. This is sort of something I've been thinking about. Going, it's, it, it feels like people come to the Zendo sometimes like a gym membership, right? Like, I'm just going to swipe my card, go in, work out, and then leave. It's an object. It's a sub, you know, it's like... put my earbuds in, do my cardio, do my weights, you know, don't look at anybody else, and then just take off. <clears throat> Again, seeing Buddhism as a commodity. Um, this part is interesting. I think Hori says, um, what he says next is particularly relevant. Many aspects of Buddhism, the teaching that all beings have true nature, Buddha nature, the notion of total interdependence, the emphasis on wisdom and compassion, are enormously attractive to people in the West. But it's not obvious that Buddhism, taken as a conceptual system, is consistent with the European Enlightenment view that a person is an autonomous being. Thus, a Buddhist practitioner who has grown up in the West must eventually come to a point of conflict. Must come to a point of conflict. Do I continue to assert the fundamental autonomy of the self, or do I accept the Buddhist teachings that the self is created out of our interrelatedness? This can be a struggle for practitioners. We can struggle when when, we sh when should we assert ourself? When should we assert ourselves as individuals? And when do we defer to the group or to a teacher? Or for that matter, a spouse, a coworker. When do I stick to my guns and when do I let go? Because each of us has over decades, years and decades, cultivated this strong sense of ego that it's very difficult to learn to let go. We feel like we're sacrificing something very fundamental. 
And this can happen in zazen itself, the meditation. People wonder, why is it that I have such a hard time merging with my practice? Well, you've been conditioned to to hold on for dear life to that sense of you. So if we look at how we're meditating, you'll see that we may you may be holding on, controlling your breath, or having kind of an adversarial you versus me relationship with your koan, or your awareness practice, us versus them type of thing. So, if we went back to that original question, what is Buddhism? And how do we practice Buddhism? We can see that our Western inheritance, this way of individualism, rationality, independence, may be negatively impacting our understanding and practice of Buddhism. So how do we work with it then? How do we work with it? I was sitting with this and so many things came to mind as you can imagine. But for the purpose of sharing this with you, I kind of landed on one word. And that word is Sangha. Sangha. In Buddhism, we have what are called the three treasures or three jewels. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the Buddha is this awakened mind. The awakened mind of Shakyamuni Buddha, the historic person, and our own awakened mind, which of course are identical. The Dharma is the teaching. The sutras, of course, the talks, the, the formal teachings of Zen and Buddhism, but it's also this. The teaching of the creaking tree or the teaching of the creaking knees. And the Sangha, the Sangha is the community of practitioners, the, the community who realize the Buddha, realize Buddha. Today, when we say the word Sangha, we might mean it in two different ways. There is a Sangha, a sangha like the North Carolina Zen Center, for example, where people come here, they perhaps become members, they practice here, contribute, find a meaning. And then there is the sangha, Buddhist and Zen practitioners of all stripes. Some might even say that a sangha member is anyone, Buddhist or otherwise who is genuinely working on themselves. 
So we may struggle with how to embrace and practice Sangha, community. The Buddha certainly did. When the Buddha first woke up, when he first had his great experience of enlightenment, awakening under the bow tree, as you recall, he sat there for a few weeks. He didn't really think that he could share this with anybody. He thought no one would understand it. And so he was very tempted to just bliss out to just enjoy it for himself. But eventually he realized that that would be impossible to not to try to share this teaching with others would be counter to the teaching itself. And so he gave it his best shot but he did struggle. I had my own struggles and still do with how to practice in community. When I came to practice, what I wanted was enlightenment and to get rid of my anxiety, to get a hold of my anxiety. I didn't know many people in the community because I was so anxious. I didn't try to get to know people. And it wasn't until years later when I joined what we called at the time the Kanon Committee, Kanon being the Bodhisattva of Compassion, which as a committee looked after Sangha members in need, uh, Sangha members who were sick or needed a ride somewhere. It wasn't until I started practicing that way that I got a glimpse of what this third jewel of Sangha really is about. As a part of that work, we visited, like I said, sick people. And up to that point, in many ways, I, the people I was sitting next to in the Zendo were sort of two-dimensional. I didn't know them, they didn't know me, and in a way, it was easy to dismiss their humanity. <clears throat> but it really wasn't until I started working with people one-on-one -on -one as a practice guide and as a therapist, to be honest, that it really hit me how powerful and how important the practice of Sangha really is to share in someone's struggles to relate to their struggles and to their, to their joys and see them as my own. Even, or, you know, in this process of reflection, I began to see what I mentioned a few minutes ago, that net of Indra, the reflection of every jewel inside myself and vice versa. Every jewel reflecting every other jewel. The power of working in Sangha is that it helps us work against this sense of separation 
our sense of aloneness. Isn't this really what the Buddha taught? That we feel separate. We suffer because we are separate. We to correct that, we feel we are we suffer because we feel separate. We're not separate, but we feel like it. And so if we come to sitting, if we come to a meditation center and practice, but we're just doing it alone, does that help? Does it help to relieve that sense of suffering, of aloneness that we feel? In order to really understand the depths of what the Buddha taught and practiced, we have to practice the whole thing. We can't just expect to take the meditation techniques and apply them to our disconnected sense of self and expect magic to happen. That's the American approach, but it's, my, my guess is it's really not going to work. So here's a question. What if, what if we kept expanding our understanding of what Sangha or community is? Where would it stop for you? Where, who would it exclude? What would it exclude? What if it didn't exclude anyone? or anything. The Buddha teaches us that we are everything. But we have to practice that. We can't just expect that to dawn on us suddenly. <clears throat> I want to end with a quote that I've used, I think, here before, but I, I just love it. And my teacher used it, so I got it from him. It's by Einstein. He said, A human being is a part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in space and time. He experiences himself, his thoughts, and feeling as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Thanks for listening. Um, I want to, we have a few minutes, um, just a few, but I'd love to open it up and see. And please, again, take care of your posture, stretch, whatever you need to do. Leave if you want to. <laughs> but it, what, it, what, what does this bring up for you? Maybe nothing. Maybe we just sit here in silence and enjoy that together but
What's on your mind with this, if anything? 